0: thanks again for the warm welcome to Susan and I this morning, it's uh, our second time with you, it's good to be back, Uh, we've been looking forward to it. Um, Some of you might not have been here the last time we were along, we started to look at uh, Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, and uh, most of us probably are familiar with Joseph's story, Joseph and his dreams and his technicolor dream coat, at least that's the way one translation had it. Uh, And of course, there was that massive falling out he had with his brothers, uh, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And we're picking up the story this morning, then, in Genesis 39. So as we looked at uh, Genesis 37, very much it was a story of hatred being exposed, the disordered relationships in Joseph's family, between Jacob, his father, and between Joseph and his brothers, and we saw at that time how much misery was multiplied as a result of, the, of that uh, hatred and disordered relationships. Um, today's passage is much more encouraging in many ways as we see Joseph moving on in his life and with God to be used by him. So rather a story of maturity nurtured, of holiness being nurtured. Although by the time we get to the end of our chapter, there's a surprising outcome. Now, Joseph sold into Egypt. As that happens, we have no idea what he's thinking. Uh, the, The storyteller, the narrator, doesn't give us a glimpse into Joseph's Uh, mind and thoughts, and so we need a little bit to read between the lines, but I think we're given some good guidance about that. We bear in mind that as he arrives in Egypt, he's 17 years old, just a teenager, and it will be a further 21 years before he sees his brothers again, and as the succeeding chapters. Uh, rumble on over 20 years. We only see glimpses now and then into what's happening in Joseph's life. Each time we do it seems to be a moment of trauma and of testing. Now we've uh, skipped over chapter 38. Uh, those of you who are numerate among us and can count 37 will know it. Chapter 38 is a, a slightly unusual chapter. It's an interlude about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, important in its own right often it seems to stand slightly outside Joseph's story. I think it's integral and significant to it, but uh, we'll only be mention it br- mentioning it briefly uh, as we move on in Joseph's own story this morning. And as we do so, we see Joseph being prepared by God to be, in a sense, one who would be a savior in his world. Uh, there would come a time of starvation in which the life of uh, all those around him would be imperiled, and uh, God's preparing Joseph for that time. It began with the suffering at the hands of his brothers, and it's about to get worse, so let's read Genesis 39 together then. I'm reading from the NIV. If you're following in one of the church Bibles, it's on page 13. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put it in charge of, put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me, except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, ran out of the house. She called to her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought up to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home and she told him this story. That Hebrew slave he brought us came to me to make sport of me. And as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success. Amen. So the Lord bless this reading, this word, in our hearts this morning. Well, what a dramatic, uh, even racy, story that we're told here as the Joseph story unfolds. And in it we get some quite profound glimpses of the providence of God. Uh, God's providence, it's it's an important concept for us to at least be aware of uh, it's implicit here in chapter 39 as joseph's story unfolds it becomes explicit and so it's important that we understand at least a little bit about what we mean by god's providence well very simply it's the way that god governs the world that he made he made he created the world, he sustains the world, and he governs what happens in his world. And that's what we mean by God's providence. It's part of his create. the other part, we might say, of his creative activity. He brings life into being, and he cares for that life. As, as one definition has it, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. And already, as we reflect on what's happened in the story that we've seen, we see God preserving Joseph's life, but we also see God governing Joseph's life. And we want to think about that as we work through the passage this morning. Now, there are great mysteries involved when we consider God's providence We won't be going into all those depths this morning, but important to bear that in mind. What's God doing in Joseph's life? A question that we ask ourselves, what is God doing in my life, in our lives together? Well, it's an interesting and intricate story. I'm going to treat it in four movements, so not the traditional three-point sermon this morning, and the words don't even alliterate, so... Breaking all the molds this morning. Um, But we see both at the beginning and the end of the story something of God's presence with Joseph in different ways. So we start with presence. We then think about uh, desire and temptation. Uh, Desire, especially from the point of view of Mrs. Potiphar, and temptation, especially from the point of view of Joseph. And then as we finish up, we return to this notion of the Lord's presence. With Joseph. So that's our roadmap for the morning, starting with presence, moving through desire and temptation, and back to thinking in a fresh way about God's presence with Joseph. Well, presence might seem like a very simple thing and an obvious thing, but it's an important thing here in Joseph's story, and it cries out for our attention in these opening verses, but we might easily slip by it. It starts in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3. When the Master saw the Lord was with him, the Lord gave him success. Verse 5. Of all that he owned, the Lord blessed Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything in house and field. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And if you're looking at least at the printed Bible this morning, uh, you'll see that the Lord is in small capital letters. Now wherever we see Lord in small capital letters in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, what's behind that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel. So uh, that's an important thing for us to see here, partly because um, while we might expect to see the Lord referred to everywhere, in fact it's only in this chapter in the Joseph story that the Lord is referred to in this way. Elsewhere, will we, the God of Israel will be referred to as God, a sort of generic word for the the uh, supreme being. But only here do we read of the Lord, the God of Israel, at work. So it's. Uh, Obviously, this is something that our storyteller wants us to see, that the Lord is active in Joseph's life at this moment when he arrives in Egypt. That's a bit counterintuitive for us, isn't it? Joseph's been sold into slavery. He's arrived in a foreign country. He's completely alone. He's sold into the service of some official. He's got no control over his life, and yet... The Lord is with him. The covenant God of Israel, God of promise, is with him and blessing him. And I think this is the first inkling we see that something's happening in Joseph's life. You know, we read in the New Testament, don't we, that as uh, draw near to God, that he might draw near to you. And I think we have something of this mutual movement. Joseph moving towards the God of his fathers. Here already, as he arrives in Egypt, it's the sort of thing that the psalmist has in mind, I think, at the end of Psalm 1. The Lord watches the way of the righteous. And we see Joseph on this journey in his life, and God with him. same principle that Jesus uh, teaches in that chapter in John on the uh, vine and the branches. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, if you abide in me. I will abide in you. And I think as we get this first glimpse of Joseph's life in Egypt, we see things heading in this kind of direction that uh, at the moment Joseph might least have expected. And as he comes to recognize God working in his life, the Lord blesses him, makes not only his work prosper, but all that happens in the house of Potiphar, his Egyptian master. Well, that's uh, an irony that we'll reflect on again in just a moment, but important then to see how God is with Joseph, this presence of God as Joseph's time in Egypt begins. But from this uh, fairly optimistic starting point, things start to go askew, and we see this in these twin concepts of desire and temptation, especially through the eyes of Mrs. Potiphar, she just have her names, often the case in Old Testament stories. Uh, we'll call her Mrs. Potiphar. Uh, we see desire at work, and from Joseph's point of view, especially, we see temptation at work. But of course, these two things are often linked together. Well, let's start by disentangling them and saying a little bit about desire as we look at Mrs. Potiphar. So we see, see this pretty clearly signaled partway through verse 6. Now Joseph was well built in Now it's not very often, actually, that the Old Testament stories tell us what look, somebody looks like. Except when it matters to the story. We know a little bit about David's appearance because he didn't look like his brothers. He didn't look like the king they did. Uh, We know what Samson looked like and one or two others, but very unusual, actually, to be given even a minimalist description of somebody's physical appearance like this. It's clearly important for the story because Joseph's being well-built and handsome clearly has something to do with Mrs. Potiphar's taking notice of him. She took notice of Joseph and she desired him. Now, desire is especially something that comes from inside. It's like a, a, a spring that provides some motive force in impelling our actions, in, in pushing us. Uh, think of it in very simple terms. Uh, all desires are bad desires. If we're thirsty, we might have that inner desire for something to drink, and it motivates my action to seek A drink, and uh, uh, that's desire, and it prompts an action. So, not always wrong, but our desires can be in conflict with themselves. Uh, I work at Faith Mission Bible College. Um, During term time, we're provided with lunches. Lunches often come with desserts. Mm. I'd like to have the dessert, but I'd like also not for my <coughs> kids to tell me how pudgy I am. And my desire for the dessert conflicts with my desire to actually to be a little bit sl- okay, a lot slimmer. Uh, so desires can be in conflict. They don't always need to be wrong, but desires can very quickly become distorted. And uh, this is what's happening in Mrs. Potiphar's life. She's very much a woman of the world, and she shows us the destructive power of distorted desire, desire that's gone astray, that's not flowing in the channels that God intends. Of course, she's not an Israelite, she doesn't know uh, the true and living God, We, it seems, uh, but for all that she puts on display the kind of desire that damages her life, that, the script, that degrades her life, that damages her husband's household, as through this affair he will lose the best household manager he will ever have. So it's important, I think, just to reflect for a moment on what's going on in Mrs. Potiphar's life, and we get some guidance on this in Scripture. 1 John chapter 2 reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. (laughs) A kind of shorthand for desire gone wrong. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's important then that our desires are rightly shaped, rightly formed. And as natural people, I think it's natural that our desires are conformed to the world, not to the will of God. And uh, Psalm 1, which I've already referred to, gives a little guidance for those who are followers of Jesus and uh, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. There's a life that's oriented to and shaped by the will of God. It's immersed in that will. uh, That doesn't take its cues and have its desires shaped by the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, and so on. So it's important to be aware of what's shaping my perceptions. Uh, What do I expose myself to that that sharpens my desires? Uh, And it's important that we look to the Lord's word as he gives us help to have our lives shaped by what pleases him rather than by the world itself. Well, as I say, desire is often deeply linked to temptation, and much as Mrs. Uh, Potiphar experiences temptation, in the drama of the story, we especially see this through Joseph's eyes. Now, if temptation is like a, an inner spring that impels us towards something, the kind of spring you wind up, that is, then temptation is a trigger from outside. It's something outside that pulls us. And uh, this is what, of course, is happening with Joseph in verses 8 to 10. And it, once again, we see it in verse 12, where Mrs. Potiphar is uh, beckoning him, but Joseph refuses. And he refuses because of the trust that his master has placed in him. And at the end of verse nine how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So it's it's clear he's got a different constellation of relationships in mind than simply what he and Mrs. Potiphar might do together. He understands that his relationships have meaning in terms of his life before God. And uh, again in verse 12, as she catches him alone, but he left his cloak in her hand ran out of the house. So we see temptation and desire very much coming together here, a kind of push-pull. And when they come together in this way, they can lead very quickly to something destructive. And we can see how temptation can distort desire when the push of desire meets the pull of temptation, when my hunger turns into greed. Uh, when my tiredness turns into swamp. Or or when our other physical appetites run outside the channels that God prescribed for them. Oh, it's a combination that James, the brother of Jesus, had something to say about. This is from James chapter 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In fact, this is the kind of process that's been taking place in Mrs. Potiphar. Her desire has met with a temptation that's led to something destructive. But what's Joseph's vantage point, Joseph, uh, quite remarkably, I think, a young man, young uh, man, uh, well-built and handsome, uh, resists temptation. And, and it, again, the story doesn't spell it out, but it's very clear what Joseph does. And it's important for us to catch, to see what he's doing. I think three steps in Joseph's resisting temptation here. First of all, he names it. And in verse 9 we see, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? doesn't put an easier label on it. He doesn't rationalize it. He calls a state a state. It's sin. And he, in naming it, I think he's got a much clearer sense of what he's dealing with not just somebody's affections or any other way that he might be rationalizing his actions. It's sin. The second thing he does, he names it. Secondly, he avoids it. He refuses even to be with it. He just stays out of her way. He knows it to be wrong. He avoids it. He stays out of the way of temptation so much as it's possible for him. So he names it he avoids it, and thirdly, ultimately, when it confronts him, he flees. He turns and runs. In verse 12, he left the cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And so, uh, Joseph resists temptation. Um, And I think that it's especially here, we see how Joseph is moving on from the Joseph we see in chapter 37, where he was slightly at odds with his father who loved him, where he certainly was at odds with his brothers who hated him. But Joseph shows that he's learning that human relationships, how we relate to each other, is a reflection of the reality of our relationship with God. We tend to think about ourselves first, I think, then those nearest us, and then to think about God. I think that's the way our hierarchy of concerns generally flows. But I think as we mature in faith and as we learn to live a a rightly ordered life, that that ordering gets turned upside down. That's what we see happening with Joseph here. He sees in the first instance that the Lord's blessing is on him. And as he draws closer to the Lord, how can I sin against what God is doing for me? That's his first concern. And then he's concerned also about his master, the other, who trusts him and placed everything in his care. And then he doesn't actually register that he's concerned about himself, which was his whole concern in Genesis 37. For me, I had a dream. Chaps, do you want to hear my dream? It's quite good. We don't see that, Joseph at all, here in chapter 39. So Joseph uh, learns that human relationships reflect the reality of our relationship before God. Now I want to pause here just to mention chapter 38. Um, Joseph's quite a virtuous character and we're we're so (coughs) thankful to see that in this example it's possible to name temptation to uh, avoid it and ultimately to flee from it. That's What needs to happen? Chapter 38 works in a very different way. It's about Joseph's brother Judah. We won't go into the story today. It's a complex and dark story in many ways. But we see Judah giving in to desire and temptation. Much in a way that Joseph does not. Joseph resists it. But in Judah's life, desire and temptation act as James had it, that is, they together conceived to give birth to sin. Judah's story is encouraging, and if there's those of us in the room this morning who've understood what it is to be a Judah rather than a Joseph, to have given in to temptation rather than to have resisted it and fled from it, Judah's story shows us that there is a possibility of repentance, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and once again to be used by God for his purposes. So Judah's story is an encouraging contrast with Joseph's at this quite unexpected point. But in Joseph's story we see this helpful uh, example to name sin, to avoid it, to flee from it, dealing with temptation in those ways. Of course it's hard for us to do But as Christians, one of the things that we can do more than what Joseph did is to look to Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews told us some important things about Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior for those of us who put our trust in him. The writer to the Hebrews said because he suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And filling that out a little bit more fully in Hebrews chapter four, we don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so beyond what we, the lesson we learned from Joseph, we also have this encouragement. Let us approach the throne of grace, the life of prayer, seeking Jesus with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So, desire and temptation and some important lessons from the life of Joseph. But we return then in the closing verses to the matter of God's presence and God's providence, where we began. Now, we picked out those instances, I think it's five times at the beginning of the chapter, that the Lord, in small capital letters, the Lord is named, and the only other place in the Joseph story where the Lord is named is as the chapter ends. Just as there's God's providence at work in Joseph entering Potiphar's house, so that we see God's providence at work as Joseph leaves and departs from Potiphar's house. And in the manner of that departure... Now, when Joseph was sold into Egypt in chapter 37... It was unjust, it was unfair, um, but a little bit, we think. <coughs> a sniveling teenager, he sort of had it coming to him. Uh, we might harbor that suspicion. Nothing like it in chapter 39, as Joseph again experience, experiences some injustice. He's a victim of injustice here, but after acting virtuously, After uh, respecting Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar, and after doing what is right not only before men, but before God. And what does he get for his troubles? Thrown in prison, if anything worse than before, from head servant and a wealthy household to a captive in the dungeon. And again we need to see what Scripture is telling us. It's not like God took his eye off the ball, uh, but that in these events too of Joseph's life, uh, verse 21, the Lord was with him. The Lord hadn't left him, hadn't departed. But in this heart providence in Joseph's life, the Lord is still with him. And I think we see here, just as we've been seeing through the episode of Desire and Temptation, that Joseph's learning to cooperate with God and have a God-oriented life. As I said when we began, we don't get many glimpses into Joseph's psyche. Don't, the narrative doesn't tell us what he's thinking. But I think we see in these actions and in the way that uh, Joseph responds to his presence in the prison. And again, he acts for the benefit of others and so on. But he's learning actively to accept the providences that God brings into his life. Even these injustices and these painful things. I think the psalmist sums it up well. That's his psalm 105, right in the middle of a long psalm, beginning at verse 16. When the Lord summoned a famine on the land of Egypt, and broke the supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them. Joseph. Sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar. collar of iron. Until what the Lord said. Had come to pass. The word of the Lord. Tested him. Tested him. God's got something for Joseph to do. It's a massive task. Joseph's been given some glimpse of this and the dreams he had in chapter 37. And God's preparing him for it. All along, whether it's being sold into Egypt or cast into the dungeon, as Joseph rightly orients his life before God and to God, we see God preparing him for the saving work that Joseph is going to do now, it's important that we don't think uh, there's always something ahead that God has for me. Joseph's living in the day. He's uh, doing well in Papa's Far- household. He's working well in the dungeon when he is cast into prisons. But God's preparing him. And if we're able to look further a bit into this story, we'll see that it takes some time before Joseph is ready to be used by God for the purpose for which God has put him on earth. But each moment of preparation was God's purpose. We're not just waiting for tomorrow or the big thing to serve God faithfully and fruitfully. But as the prophet Zechariah had it, we learn to be faithful in the day of small things, keeping step with God's spirit for whatever he might have in store for us in future. And so the mystery of God's providence uh, of the reward that Joseph gets for doing good, he's condemned to prison. Of course, it pointed to the, probably the greatest injustice ever. And we see in Joseph's life, as he's being prepared to save those of his own time, we see something of a cross shaped life of Jesus. The one who was being prepared to suffer the greatest injustice. Not that he might just save some, but that he might be the savior of all who turn to him. And as we consider uh, Joseph's life as our story draws to a close this morning, of course, this is the greater claim that that story places on us to consider what it is to live a cross-shaped life. And if there are those of us this morning who are struggling with these push pull Problems of desire and temptation. It's of looking to Jesus, who understands what it is to be tempted, yet without sin, and can help us in our time of need. And for those of us who, perhaps like Judah, have succumbed to temptation and done and to our own desires and have acted in sin, it's the encouragement to say sorry for those sins, to repent of them, turn away from them. To see forgiveness, the, the forgiveness that comes by knowing we have a Savior who took our punishment. And then by that resurrection life of the Lord Jesus, to live for God and through his help. Let's pray together. <clears throat> We thank you, our gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, that you know our frame, you know our weakness, for you know need us. And we thank you that you do not remain angry forever, but that you have made it possible for us to turn to you in repentance and faith, and to know that you are a loving, Heavenly Father, and that your Son was willing to lay down his life to atone for my sin your heart, so that we could be reconciled to you. So we thank you for this encouragement this morning to cooperate with your providence in our lives, to learn that you are with us, even when circumstances might suggest you're not. Know. Thank you for the quite practical encouragement to be careful how we live, to be responsible for desires and temptations that we inevitably face day by day. Lord, help us to live faithfully lives of integrity that we might bear the light of your gospel in a dark way. Yes, the Spirit Lord in Jesus' name.